Welcome to the OKC First Church of the Nazarene podcast. At OKC First, we are learning to do three things. Friendship with God, friendship with one another, and open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. As we heard earlier in the announcements, Pastor John and several of the staff members are in Indianapolis for this important meeting of our global church, the General Assembly, when thousands of our sisters and brothers come from across the world for worship, workshops, conventions, meetings, to not only worship together, as important as that is, most important, but also to talk about some of the issues that face the church, whether they're theological issues, ethical issues, or questions having to do with the nature of the church as an organization, issues of policy, and so forth. Let's pray that there would be that spirit of unity and oneness Yes, there will be probably some disagreements and debates about this or that. May we be one in Christ and uh, let's make sure that everything is done in the spirit of Christ. So let's be in prayer as no doubt you have been in the last few days and in the coming days as the church meets for this quadrennial general assembly. Our scripture today in Matthew 10 is a tough one. I did not choose it. (laughs) When we follow the lectionary, sometimes the lectionary gives us scriptures that may not really take too kindly to. the lectionary established by the church for the Christian calendar, sometimes we have to listen to something that may not be easy for our ears. If we left it all to our preferences, we might be tempted to choose biblical texts that uh, would be more soothing, more pleasant, and avoid scriptures that may come across as harsh and troubling. And yet these difficult texts may well be the very texts that we most need to hear. We have such a text today. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Jesus says that families will be torn apart, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother. One's enemies will be members of one's own family. Whoever loves a son or a daughter more than me, Jesus says, is not worthy of me. 
Jesus will be the cause of division, strife, turmoil between family members. Jesus did not come to bring peace, but discord, friction, and even a sword. What's going on here anyway? What are we hearing in these words of Jesus? Well, this word is part of a long speech that Jesus gives called the mission instructions. As Jesus sends out his disciples to do their mission in the world. And Jesus gives them this warning. Don't expect everything to go smoothly. And what was to be their mission? Well, last Sunday we heard Pastor John talk about that. Announce that the kingdom of God is near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Heal the lepers. Cast out demons. We are called to do this. Have you ever raised a dead person? I haven't. Have you ever touched a leper and cleansed the leper? Maybe we haven't even seen a leper. Jesus is sending us into the world to be shepherds to sheep that have no shepherd. Jesus is sending us into the world to be compassionate toward people who have no hope, who are cast down like lepers, like dead people. Pronounce the good news of God, the kingdom of God. And wherever you go, whatever town or village or house you enter, Jesus says, what are you supposed to do? Give a greeting of peace. Bring peace, healing, wholeness to people who are forgotten and marginalized. And yet Jesus also warns his disciples that not everyone will take kindly to this message of peace. There will be opposition. Jesus says, I'm sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all because of my name. A disciple is not above the teacher nor a slave about the master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Do we really need, do really want to hear such awful words? But they are there, the message of Jesus. For his disciples then, 
and for us disciples now. If there ever was a time when we needed to find ways to bring peace, to bring unity and harmony and healing among family members and society at large, in fact, the entire world, and indeed, maybe even within the church itself, it is certainly now in the kind of world we live in. Can we find a way to live out the peaceful kingdom of God and the message of Jesus in a world that is too acquainted with strife, division, hostility, and violence? But now we are hearing Jesus say, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Why such a harsh word from one who came to be the Prince of Peace? At the birth of Jesus, the heavenly choir sang that song, Peace on Earth. And in one of the Beatitudes of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew 5, we hear Jesus say, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And now, Jesus says he did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What's this about? Before we go any further, let's make sure that we understand what this sword is that Jesus talks about. It's not a call to his followers to take up arms and fight people who may be threatening them. Unfortunately, throughout Christian history and also in our own time, there have been more than enough examples among Christians who thought that they had the right and the responsibility of wielding the sword against anyone who may be a threat to us, to Christianity, to us, to us around us in the Middle Ages. The church in Europe organized the crusades to wage war against people, Islamic people, who had taken the Holy Land. And the war of the crusades was to rescue the Holy Land from the hands of Muslim people. We have many other instances where Christians have strongly taken the stand that it is their God-given duty to use arms to protect themselves against anyone who might be an enemy or a threat. Is that the kind of sword that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 10? No, that's not the sword that Jesus is talking about. If we listen to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, we certainly can't take this sword in chapter 10 as being a sword for us to equip ourselves to fight, uh, to fight our enemies. Do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. 
And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And so here we have it. Your Father in heaven. For he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. That's the kind of God we have. And in Matthew 26, when Jesus was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, one of his followers pulled a sword and, and cut off the ear of a servant. He probably was going to cut his head, but somehow the servant may have ducked. And this disciple only cut his ear. But what did Jesus do? He reached out and healed the person with the cut off ear. What is the sword that Jesus talks about in Matthew 10? What did he mean when he said that he came not to bring peace, but a sword? That's his way of saying that you can expect opposition as you go about being my disciples in a world that often knows hostility and opposition. Not everyone will be your friend. In Matthew 10, Jesus was sending his disciples on their mission and telling them to go and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God and warn them that they were probably going to encounter hostility and rejection. The kingdom of God does not always sit well with people. The kingdom of God upsets the apple cart. It disturbs the status quo. It disrupts business as usual. If God is king, then maybe my first allegiance is not to an earthly king or an empire or an emperor or the head of state or even my own power and status and standing. The kingdom of God. So when Jesus said that he did not come to bring peace but a sword, he was not telling his disciples to carry their sword and chop off the head of anyone standing in their way. He was saying to them that not everyone will respond positively to the message of the kingdom of God. Even some family members may come out against you, Jesus says. The gospel of Jesus is not always received as good news. The kingdom does not always sit well with the structures and systems of the world in which we live. The kingdom of God comes as a threat to people. If I take the kingdom of God seriously, it means that my loyalties, attachments, and relationships and preferences 
and my values and my entire life may have to be turned upside down, or should I say, right side up. Yes, even such cherished relationships as those between parents and children, between master and servant, between business associates or political allegiances or whatever else would have to be redefined and recast in light of my discipleship to Jesus. Am I ready for such an upset in my comfortable, accustomed, self-determined way of life? Some time ago, I read in the New York Times a report on a tragic event that happened in 2010 in Tallahassee, Florida. It's the story of Connor and Anne. A young couple, 19 years of age, barely out of high school. They've been friends for three years. They were close, and their families were close. But Connor and Ed and Anne had uh, their frequent arguments with one another, but without any violent behavior. Of course, any couple, young or old, will have arguments. If anyone says, we've never had any arguments, they're either lying or they're extraterrestrial beings. <laughs> but with no history of violence, Connor, on this particular time, after some sharp words between them, she took his father's rifle, aimed it at Anne's head, and pulled the trigger. He left her there thinking that she was dead. He left her in his parents' house and drove to the police station and turned himself in. Pretty soon, paramedics arrived and took Anne to the hospital. She was unconscious, but still alive. Anne's parents were contacted with the shocking news, her father hurried to the hospital and stood by his daughter's bedside in the intensive care unit. She was connected to all sorts of tubes and machines to try to keep her alive. And yet, she was dying, unable to speak. Somehow, her dad felt that his unconscious daughter was speaking to him and saying to him over and over, forgive him, forgive him, forgive him. His response was immediate and almost audible. No, Anne. That's impossible. And you're asking too much. Anne's father says that he was in the hospital room praying 
when he felt a connection between his daughter and Jesus Christ. Like Jesus on the cross, she had wounds on her head and her hand. Anne's parents strive to model their lives on those of Jesus Christ and the saints of the church, such as St. Augustine. And forgiveness is deep in their history and in their creed and in their tradition. They are devout, practicing Catholics. Anne's father realized that it was not just Anne asking him to forgive Connor. It was Jesus Christ. He told the New York Times reporter that he had not said no to Jesus before, and he wasn't going to say no now. He, he felt a wave of joy and told Anne, I will, I will. Jesus or no Jesus, he says, what father can say no to his daughter? Now, Connor's parents were in Panama City, about 100 miles away. They were on vacation with their daughter, 16-year-old daughter, Katie. They got the call from the Tallahassee police. One of them had to stay with Katie because she was developmentally disabled. It was decided that Connor's dad would drive to Tallahassee alone. When he arrived at the hospital, the hallway outside Anne's room was packed with people and he became overwhelmed. Pretty soon, Anne's dad approached Connor's dad and gave him a hug to the surprise of both men. Anne's dad says, I can't tell you what I was thinking, but what I told him was how I felt at that moment. I knew that we were somehow together on this journey. Something had happened to our families, and I knew being together rather than being apart was going to be more of what I needed. When Connor was booked, he was told to give the names of five people that would be permitted to come to the jail to visit him. And guess what? He put Anne's mother's name, Kate, on the list. Connor says he doesn't know why he did so. I was in a state of shock. At first, Anne's mother, Kate, did not want to see him at all. But that feeling turned to willingness and then to a need. She says, before this happened, I loved Connor. I knew that I defined Connor by, that if I defined Connor by that one moment as a murderer, I was defining my daughter as a murder victim and I could not allow that to happen. Before going to the jail, she asked her husband 
if he had a message for Connor. He said, tell him I love him and I forgive him. And Kate wanted to be able to say the same thing. Connor owed us a debt he could never repay, she says. And releasing him from that debt would release us from expecting that anything in this world could satisfy us. So here she was, at the Leon County Jail, across from Connor in front of a reinforced glass partition. Connor immediately told her how sorry he was. They both sobbed, and Kate told him what she had come to say. Then Kate went back to the hospital to remove her daughter from life support. After four days on life support, her life ended. So now, what about justice? Will Anne's parents have any say in what the law does with Connor? They decided that instead of going through the usual path of crime and punishment, they would pursue the path of reconciliation through what's called restorative justice. Now, that sort of thing, restorative justice, is usually for people who do robbery, burglary, or thieves who take things where the property could be returned and amends could be made, and then the offender would be handed a lighter sentence. But here is a capital case. Restorative justice was unheard of in a capital case. The New York Times Magazine had, has this heading for this article, Can Forgiveness Play a Role in Criminal Justice? But somehow, Anne's parents succeeded in arranging for such a thing. That meant that they would sit three days in a room in a Florida prison with Connor and his parents and lawyers and the prosecuting attorney and a facilitator speaking honestly about feelings of anguish and anger and unimaginable horror. The criminal lawyer who was there said this, it was excruciating to listen to them uh, talk. It was as traumatic as anything I've ever listened to in my life. From, from the very start, Anne's parents felt strongly and yet painfully that a path must be found to make restoration possible for this young man who had taken their daughter's life. Forgiveness is possible, but it's never easy or cheap. As a result, the prosecuting attorney de decided to hand Connor a lighter sentence, 20 years in prison and 10 years on probation. A sword entered 
and pierced literally and figuratively, what will they do? They will make it into an occasion for peace and forgiveness and grace. This morning, we need to hear another word from Jesus. Jesus says repeatedly in Matthew 10, don't be afraid. That's not a glib, easy thing that Jesus says. It's nothing like, don't worry, be happy. If the good news of the kingdom of God may not come across as good news, but something to be opposed, the disciples of Jesus may decide they better hunker down, pull the shutters, lock the doors, and hide and withdraw from the world. No, don't do that. One might think, oh, I'm not going to trust anybody. I will always be on my guard. You never know what that other person will do to me. So carry your sword wherever you go. You never know what you might encounter. But that is not what Jesus is calling his disciples to do. But that is the kind of culture we live in. Yet we hear Jesus say over and over, don't be afraid. God cares about those little sparrows that are sold for pennies. It's food for people. I made three birdhouses outside our house in the backyard. And once in a while, birds come and nest there. And sometimes a little bird in the nest will fall and will die. And every time that happens, I think of this verse. God cares for sparrows. And yet God also cares for how much hair you have on your head. Now with some of us, it's easy for God. <laughs> but God knows all about us, even some significant or insignificant details about us. God takes the time to count the hair on our head. Can we trust the love and grace of God and live in peace even under threatening circumstances? Can we be people of peace even when a sword is being waved in our face? Yes, we could get hurt. We could get knocked down. Jesus lived that kind of life. And his life was taken from him in a cruel and violent death. And yet clear to the end, Jesus remained steadfast in his commitment to a peaceable kingdom. Even when a sword pierced his heart and snuffed out his life. Are we prepared to live the kind of life that Jesus lived? But there's a mystery that we have to keep before our eyes. Jesus breathed his last in that dark moment on a hill called Golgotha. But somehow in the providence of God, that was not the end. The soldiers sealed the tomb and they posted themselves as guards. 
but somehow they could not keep Jesus in that tomb. You see, when we go with God, even the darkest moments and hopeless circumstances become the moment when God does God's greatest work. Christ is resurrected. Life is more powerful than death. Love is more powerful than hate. God's kingdom of peace has a way of winning the war without a sword, without retaliation, without violence, but always by a power that is the power of self-giving love, lavishly demonstrated in grace and mercy and forgiveness. There's no better way for us to rehearse that sort of life and an ethic of love and peace than to come to the table of the Lord, to receive the Eucharist, to eat the broken bread, and to drink from the poured out cup. Let me invite those who will be serving to come now and prepare the table for us. One of the most beautiful liturgical prayers addressed to God as we prepare to receive the bread and cup is this one that we often use in liturgical service. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and cup. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Amen. On the night that Jesus gave up his life for us, he took bread, gave thanks, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples, and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you do it, remember me. And so today, as in every service, we come to the table of the Lord. In a moment, you will be asked to stand and exit to your left and come forward and receive the bread. Come with cupped hands. A piece of bread will be placed in your hand. But first, dip it in the cup and then eat. Following that, there are several things you could do. You could come by this baptismal font and dip your fingers in the water as a way of remembering your baptism, as a way of reaffirming your baptism.
that we have been baptized in the death and resurrection of Christ. Or then you may also come to the altar for prayer. You may go to your seat and pray, but if you come to the altar, these side altars, the padded altars are for anyone needing healing. Someone will come and anoint you with oil and pray for healing. These other altars are for all kinds of prayer. But maybe this morning, there may be someone who says, I need forgiveness. I need to experience forgiveness. Or I need to offer forgiveness to someone that has hurt me. And I want to pray about that. If you pray here at these altars, there will be someone who will come along and place their hands on your shoulder so that you are not alone. Someone is with you. If you can't come to us, someone will come to you with a bread and cup. And now all across the sanctuary, please stand and exit to your left and come to the table of the Lord. Thank you for 
for daily bread God, we thank you that you have come to us in Jesus Christ, our Lord, who offered himself for us. We pray that we may be filled by that spirit of self-giving, of grace, of peace, of love. We pray for that person who may have experienced pain and suffering and hurt. May your comfort and the presence of your Holy Spirit be close. We pray that we may go into the world by the power of your presence in our lives, by the power of your word, and offer a reconciling word to a world that often is divided and, and in awful conditions. We pray that your spirit may enable us to be instruments of your peace in the world. We pray today for all kinds of issues that are facing us. We pray for our church as it meets to worship in Indianapolis. And we pray for your spirit to be present and guide in the worship services and in the discussions that take place. Be with the pastors, ministers, and lay people who have gathered there on the law cross our denomination as a church. May we be faithful to the call that you have placed upon us as a church to offer that message of peace and sanctification and holiness and love and grace to a world that often does not know how to experience that. We give you thanks. We give you thanks for all that you do for us and in us and through us. In the name of Christ our Lord. And now we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us using debts and debtors. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.